Brothers and sisters, it's time to begin. Uh, we're, we have Jennifer Lackley today, and she'll be talking about uh, Wilfred missions. He served seven missions when we served in Nauvoo and learned that he had seven missions. My wife said, we need to do seven missions, so we're on six right now. Anyway, let's get, uh, let's get, let's learn about these missions from Jennifer Lackley. When you're done, would you be, would you exit on that side? That would be helpful for us. And again, no eating and no recording. And uh, here we go. And we're going to have a prayer by Dave Turbin. Sorry, Dave. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we're very glad to be here. We're thankful for this beautiful place. It's our prayer that we will learn something useful and apply it in our lives, that we can be a light to the world and make it a little bit better by how we live, what we say and do, the people that we touch. We're grateful for the efforts that Sister Mackley has made and the research that she's done that helps us better understand uh, how line upon line we're given uh, knowledge and information and how the prophets have uh, guided the work to guide us to thy son, Jesus Christ. It's our prayer that we can be found worthy of the blessings that we enjoy. <coughs> And as we attend the temple and as we do family history, we will understand the importance of doing the work for those that have passed through the veil. We ask thy special blessing upon Sister Mackley that she will have thy spirit with her as she teaches today. And that we will be receptive through the promptings of the Holy Ghost. Be guided in what we do with the information as we say in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. amen. Thank you, Dave. It is an honor to be with you today and to share some of the things that we can learn from Wilfred Woodruff. I am the director of the Wilfred Woodruff Papers Project and would like to um, reserve a few minutes at the end um, for information about that and any questions that you might have about the work that's being done. It's an incredible privilege to work um, within his documents, to learn from him, and to truly understand um, what our prophets can teach us. And what I want to share with you today is um, what I think the, the main message that Wilfred Woodruff teaches, that it's a constant process that we go through, and that the process that he outlines in his records and in his life, the example that he sets for us, is not one for prophets only. It's available to all of us, and it applies in our failures and our successes and um, it begins with faith, um, faith in our Savior Jesus Christ, and the, um, not only responsibilities and the opportunity that we have, but the, the mission that we all have together is to uh, bring each other home. Um, and to do that uh, requires um, a community, not just one of us. None of us can make it home alone. <laughs> So um, I hope that as I share some of the um, records that he preserved, some of the wisdom that he recorded, that you'll understand the process that he went through, the process that we all go through, and that the ultimate goal is to bring us back home to our Savior. At some point, we will all meet God, and the more that we prepare now to do that, 
um, the more we will be ready to embrace him and um, understand the love that he's always had for us. Before I begin talking about Wilfred Woodruff's missions, um, I want to um, share with you the story of his own conversion. And um, the process that Zarapulsifer went through before um, he um, baptized Wilfred Woodruff. We can go back one slide. So the process, like I was talking about, um, is one that we all can seek, um, we all can become not just converted, but consecrated. That it's according to the truth that we find, the truth that we seek and act on, that leads us to um, want to share the truth that we learn and, and that we know. So to Zara's story, Zara Pulsifer had been um, converted to the church in 1832, and less than a year later, uh, he was working in his barn, um, working with his oxen, and he felt that he needed to serve a mission. And it wasn't something he pondered. It wasn't something that he waited for a call, uh, a letter in the mail. It wasn't something that he um, wondered about. He immediately released his oxen into his field and walked in his house and said to his wife, I'm leaving on a mission. She said, where are you going? He said, I don't know, wherever the Lord directs me to go. And she said, um, when will you be back? And he said, um, whenever I finish what the Lord has for me to do. So she got him a shirt, a pair of socks, and he, and he headed out. This wasn't a beautiful spring morning. It wasn't a lovely fall summer day. It was the middle of December in upstate New York. And the first place that he headed was his distant neighbor, Elijah Cheney, and asked Elijah to accompany him. And they began walking, and they walked 60 miles north. They didn't stop anywhere until they reached uh, home in Richland, the home of Wilford and Asmund Woodruff. They knocked on the door, and Asmund's wife answered and said that the men were gone, but she would share the message with them that, that these missionaries would be holding a meeting that night. So Zara's example is one of not only seeking truth, but continually being willing to be open to new inspiration and new guidance and acting on it. Not questioning it in the sense of, yeah, I, I could go on a mission. I'll wait for somebody to talk to me about it. Or, yes, I know these things, but um, now's not a good time. I'll wait till spring. He immediately left. His wife completely supported him and Elijah was willing to accompany him. All those things were key in the process for Wilfred Woodruff. So when they arrived that night, um, Wilfred Woodruff had already started this process. Whether it's a process that takes a week or a month or years, it is one that we all have to start with the seeking, the asking. And Wilfred and his brother Asman had been seeking together. And they'd been doing it for almost a decade. So when Wilfred Woodruff was 14 years old, um, it would have been about the same uh, time as Joseph Smith. The same seeking. But for him, he spent seven years studying the scriptures. Um, he said his mind was often exercised upon the subject of his own salvation, just like <coughs> Joseph Smith. But he resolved that under God's direction, 
through the grace of God, he knew that he would be led by the Spirit to know the truth. And he, like Joseph, had studied other religions, but he felt that they didn't match the divine truth that he'd learned in the scriptures. So he continued to seek. He even went to the, the length of asking to be baptized by immersion to follow the example of the Savior. And when the minister said, you know, that of course I'd be willing to baptize you and welcome to our congregation. And he said, no, I, I'm sorry, I'm not going to join your church because it's not true, but I do need to be baptized by immersion. <laughs> so when the minister said, well, then I, I'm not going to baptize you, he said, would you deny a believer this ordinance? So he related and baptized him. But it was years later um, when Zarapulsifer came that Wilfred Woodruff went to hear this. He had been prepared, and he was prepared to act. So they arrived right before Zarapulsifer began to speak. He prayed, and Wilfred said he had never heard that kind of prayer. And then he sang a hymn, and then he preached for an hour and a half. And Wilfred again was ready to listen. And what was startling to me in the story of Wilfred's um, first gospel sermon was that he felt God's witness immediately. So the process, like I said, can take years, can take months. In the case of Wilfred Woodruff, he was prepared, and it took minutes for him to go from receiving the truth to acting on it. At the end of Zara's talk, he opened it up to the audience. He said there was, they were given liberty to um, share what they felt or thought, and Wilfred Woodruff felt compelled to stand and bear witness to the truth that he had just heard. So his process in this case of seeking, being converted, and sharing only took that hour and a half. That night he read the Book of Mormon and the next day he asked to be baptized. And so did his brother Asmund. They were joined by a few other women, um, not Asmund's wife. But when he asked for baptism, he understood what he was doing that it was a, a witness before God of not only his commitment to serve him and keep his commandments, but to stand as a witness. And that is what sharing the truth means. Uh, it's not enough to keep it to ourselves. It's not enough to understand it ourselves. And it's the sharing of it that is our mission. Um, so for him, he was committed. He was converted. But it's not a checklist. You don't check off faith, you don't check off conversion, you don't check off even baptism. That covenant continues, and those responsibilities continue at all times and in all things and in all places. So for Wilfred Woodruff um, and Asmund, their first test came a few months later. They were baptized December 31st, 1833, and on April 1st, Parley P. Pratt and Lyman White and a few other missionaries um, came to Richland to gather those who would become what we know now as Zion's camp. Matt Godfrey talked about this yesterday in detail, but what I want to emphasize um, today is that it was a test. It was a test for two brothers who had traveled this journey together and come to this same point. They had shared the same seeking, um, the same faith, the same baptism, the same conversion. And when Brother Parley said it was the will of the Lord that they should join this group to go up to Zion, 
Wilfred Woodruff explained to them, we've just bought this, this mill. Um, they'd been millers with their father and the other Woodruffs for hundreds of years in Connecticut. They had just gone out on their own. Um, they'd just been there over a year, and it was a commitment that, um, financial commitment, but he said when he explained that to Party B. Pratt, he said um, it was still his duty to prepare himself and go to Zion. The same response that Zara Pulsifer had wasn't, I'll take a few months, I'll settle my affairs, um, I'll think about it. Um, he immediately settled his and arranged his affairs, sold what he had, and, and left to join Zion's camp. So Zion's camp was an intense few months um, in May and June. After that, he spent the summer working in Missouri. And then um, exactly one year after his baptism, he recorded this in his journal. We understand that the law of consecration, um, sometimes we think of it as the United Order. The law of consecration is giving of ourselves, not just our time and our talents or our means. What we give is not something that can be put in a storehouse. Um, giving of ourselves is complete. It's giving of ourselves to God, and that means whatever we have that he can use, whatever we can be as an instrument in his hands is what he's asking us. And Wilfred Woodruff understood this. And this was um, freely given. It wasn't that the bishop came to him and said, I need you to do this. It wasn't that everybody was joining the United Order at that time. But he knew the revelation of the Doctrine and Covenants. And he said that he would freely consecrate, freely consecrate and dedicate himself. And it was together with all that he had. Now I want to just a little sidebar here. All that he had was a trunk of books a pistol, a sword, the clothes on his back, and some debts that he said were probably uncollectible. But he, he put those in as well. So it totaled $250, everything he had. So what he was giving to the Lord monetarily was very small, but what he committed at this time was the rest of his life. And he was all in. So he wanted to be a lawful heir in the celestial kingdom. And he understood what that meant. And it began, again, this cycle, this process that he continued to go through for the rest of his life. And he's no different than the other prophets that we can read about, the Moseses or the Nephites. He's um, no different than us, because this is a process that we have to commit to. And if it begins with faith in our Savior, Jesus Christ, then the conversion is a constant process. The repentance has to be relentless. The sharing, the freely giving, the consecrating, those are all things that are continuous. None of this can be checked off or ended at any time because our ultimate goal is to return to our Father in Heaven. So for Wilfred Woodruff, the first thing that he thought of in the consecration process was, where do you spend your time? So this began his cycle of missions. And Something else that um, is key in this story is Asman was his older brother. So when they were baptized, Asman was ordained a teacher. Wilford, Asman was ordained a priest, Wilford a teacher. And Asman was called to lead that branch of Richland uh, Township in New York. 
So for Wilford, he was still a teacher, and teachers aren't allowed to baptize. And he didn't want to seek for office. He didn't want to go to one of the authorities in the church and ask. He didn't think that was appropriate. So he just prayed and prayed for that opportunity. But when you think about the choice that they had to make, when Parley P. Pratt showed up on April 1st, they'd been members of the church for three months. This was a big ask. And the test that Wilford Woodruff passed, in a sense, his willingness to follow through with that covenant he'd made was um, something that Asmund didn't make. Asmund didn't join Zion's camp. So that was 1834. Three years later, Wilfred Woodruff was called to be one of the apostles. It took 30 years before Asmund returned to the church and returned to the saints and joined his brother in Salt Lake. Their trajectory was based on that decision. And so Wilford Woodruff began his first mission um, based on his prayer. He knew the gospel was true. He'd made that commitment. He'd been converted. He'd consecrated himself. And he wanted to share that. So he went into the woods to pray. Didn't want to make it public, but he knew God would hear his prayer and open his way. So... While he was praying, he received that confirmation that his prayer was heard and that his request would be granted. So lots of us pray. Answers may not come immediately and the results may not be obvious immediately. For Wilford Woodruff, they were. He stepped out of the woods onto the road and ran into Lyman White. And Lyman White said, the Lord has just revealed to me that it's your privilege to go on a mission. So he was ordained to the office of a priest and Wilfred's response, like Zara's, was, I was willing to do whatever the Lord required of me. So Wilfred Woodruff spent the next two years um, teaching in the southern states, in Arkansas, and Kentucky, and Tennessee. Some of those that he taught um, included uh, Solomon Copeland, who would be the man that Joseph Smith asked to be his vice presidential candidate when he was running for president. Um, it would the Donner Party, um, it would be Abraham Owen Smoot, um, who would be um, the uncle of his future wife, and um, many other members of the church. It was, a, it was an incredible time for Wilford to share what he knew. It was also a very difficult time, and he continued to go through the same process, the same process of seeking guidance, um, seeking inspiration, seeking additional knowledge, and then acting on what he received and going back for more more information, more light, uh, more wisdom, and um, forgiveness. So the mistakes that he made, he acknowledged and recorded, and the mistakes that others made, he acknowledged and recorded, including his companion, Harry Brown, who left him in an alligator swamp, sitting on a log lame without any way to, to continue the journey, but Harry was ready to go home and headed back to Kirtland. So, um, the extent of his forgiveness is obvious in the fact that he ended up marrying one of Harry's daughters. So, all was well. Um, so when Wilford Woodruff was on this mission, um, was when the Psalm Assembly was held in the Kirtland Temple. And he was asked by Joseph Smith to stay in the southern states while the apostles went back for that Psalm Assembly, the first endowment of power for the 
blessings that they had learned about in science camp. And Wilfred Woodruff was um, a little bit sad that he was left behind, but was again blessed with the vision and promised that he would receive those blessings. And he returned to Kirtland uh, in 1836 and was able to be part of the second solemn assembly and receive that endowment of power. So when he returned to Kirtland, he again had that um, desire to serve, to share. And this time, it was a mission to Maine, to the Fox Islands. And in, um, it was in the middle of what he called the darkness, the, the apostasy of Kirtland. And again, received that impression to go find a mission companion and go to the Fox Islands. And he didn't even know where the Fox Islands were. But it turns out they're off the coast of Maine. And his response, again, like Zara's, was, the Lord told me to go and I went. He didn't question it. In fact, he left a month after he had married his first wife, Phoebe. And the blessing of going to the Fox Islands was that's where Phoebe was from. And he was able to see his own family on the way. And between, in his, before, during, and after his mission to the Fox Islands, going from Kirtland to Maine and back, he was not only able to teach his own family, his aunts and uncles and cousins and his parents, his sisters and brothers, but also Phoebe's family. And as a result, um, as promised in his patriarchal blessing, they joined the church. So the blessing for him was that um, repeating that process of continuing to seek that guidance and um, reconsecrating himself. The conversion continued. He didn't come to the church without questions. He didn't stay in the church with all of those questions answered. What he knew was that he could trust God, and he did so. He expected miracles. Um, he didn't expect them as signs, but he expected them as a result of his faith, and he depended on them. And that was one of the, the, the reasons that he felt other churches uh, could not be the Church of Jesus Christ, because they said those things had been done away with, that they weren't part of this process. But he very, almost cavalierly says that. Went to the Fox Islands, cast out some devils, healed the sick, caused the lame to walk. It was a good mission. So um, his expectation was that if we are faithful, if we are willing to ask, then we will receive. And he counted on that. So it was while he was on the mission in the Fox Islands that he received a letter from Thomas B. March, um, letting him know that he had been called to fill the vacancy, one of the vacancies in the Quorum of the Twelve, and that he would be fulfilling the revelation, the prophecy that Joseph Smith received about the mission to Great Britain. So, um, the next place that he headed uh, that year was Great Britain. And his, when they arrived um, in January of 1840, he, his first mission companion was Theodore Turley. Um, Dave Turley gave the opening prayer as a descendant. So that's as, as close as we get to um, relationship to Wilfred Woodruff. But um, it was March 1st, it was his birthday. And to give you some context, 
context for what they had been accomplishing or doing in, in the mission in Great Britain, Wilfred Woodrow spent a month in London, and, and it took a month for them to baptize one individual. In contrast, they went to the Staffordshire Potteries, and in a month they had baptized 140. So, I don't know about you, but um, when things are going well, I, I don't necessarily say, God, is there something you want me to do differently? Things are going well. But in the middle of his success, Wilfred Woodruff recognized that that may not be where he needed to stay. And it was revealed to him at that meeting that that would be his last one and that he needed to go south. So it's March 1st, um, south meant 80 miles away and um, he was there two days later, rented a carriage. There was a, a week worth of appointments he had set out and he made sure that those were taken care of by mother, another missionary. Again, he didn't hesitate. He didn't question that that's what the Lord wanted him to do and he was willing to do whatever the Lord asked. So, again, to put this in context, if you've been in the Staffordshire Potteries for a month, you're having extraordinary success compared to you know, what he would later experience in London, 140 baptisms. You wonder why you're being sent there. And um, the group that he met there was the United Brethren. And this group had already been through the process that Wilfred Woodruff had been going through himself. They had been seeking. They had been looking for the light and truth. And they had gone as far as they could go. So Wilfred Woodruff recorded, as a body, they had called on the Lord and had advanced just as far as they could with what light they had. They prayed to the Lord that he would open the way before them, that they might advance in the things of his kingdom. And he understood that the power of God rested upon him and upon them. That there was a spirit to convince them, but also that they had already been prepared to receive it. So he was prepared and led by the Spirit. They were prepared and led by the Spirit. And it, what was astonishing to me was to re, re, read the account of one um, of the United Brethren. So it was a group of about 600 people, and they had been former Methodists, and they had formed their own circuit and their own um, preachers. And these were men and women who were called as preachers. And at the time in England, you had to have a license not only to preach, but you had to have a licensed place to preach in. And this was something that had to be granted by the Church of England or um, the local uh, authorities. So it wasn't an easy thing to do, and you had to have the official license. So when Wilfred Woodworth was teaching there, um, the first the first couple that he talked to were the Binbos. And John Binbo was a key part of this process because he was one of the leaders of this group, Thomas Kington was the other, and it was their example. Of course, um, they didn't believe it, they would not be open to having him preach in these other places. But they had 45 licensed places to preach and there were um, dozens of preachers that they were licensed preachers. So two of these women, the weekend before Wilfred Woodruff arrived, were walking, it was a Sunday afternoon, and one said to the other, what are you gonna preach today? And she said, I don't know, I've, I've taught all that I know. 
And she, and she said, what are, are you going to preach? And she said, I don't know either. But the Lord will send us light and truth. And Wilfred Woodruff arrived a few days later. So Gadfieldale Chapel um, is still exists in um, England. And this was the first oldest um, Mormon chapel that's, that's still in, in existence. And the significance of that was they were able to reach not only these 600 from this uh, former Methodist group, but thousands of others in the area. So if you think about um, what they were up against, the local minister originally, well, anytime that they would preach, they would go to the local ministers and they would ask if they could preach in their churches because, again, they had to have a licensed place to preach. And initially, they were welcoming. Um, they were fellow Christians, and um, they would allow them to teach. But the local minister um, at the St. Michael's Church in, in this area didn't think it was going very well. So he sent a constable to uh, where Wilford Woodruff was preaching and um, had him, said he needed to arrest Wilford Woodruff. And Wilford asked him to kindly take a seat, and he would talk to him after his speech. So after the speech, the constable came forward and asked to be baptized. <laughs> so um, the minister sent a clerk to just kind of check out what was going on, uh, two clerks actually, and um, figure out why his church was empty and Wilford Woodward was full. They also asked to be baptized. So he didn't send any more. Um, but what Wilford Woodward's answer to this minister was, I have a license to preach the same as you do. So this minister and those around um, petitioned the Archbishop of Canterbury and said, you need to shut this down. And the response from the Archbishop of Canterbury was, if you were as worried about your flock as you are about the Mormons, you wouldn't have to worry about the Mormons. <laughs> so um, they continued preaching and with incredible success. And the success was, um, I mean, you can measure that in baptisms, but it was also the, the change in the people themselves. So as I said, in Staffordshire, they had baptized 40 in one month. Um, when, they arrived in, when he arrived in Herefordshire on March 3rd, it, they had 160 baptisms. And with that, with Thomas Kington and um, John Binbo, they also gained these 40 authorized places to preach. John Binbo was a wealthy farmer, and um, when he joined the church, his land was repossessed in a way. They kicked him off. They said, you can't stay here anymore. But he used his money to fund um, the printing of the first 5,000 copies of the Book of Mormon in England. And by June, they had organized 12 branches with 541 members. And that doesn't even account for the over 200 that had already immigrated to join the saints in Nauvoo, among them John Binbow. By July, they had over 1,000 members. Within six months from the time of Wilfred Woodruff's arrival, there were 1,800. So there was a reason he needed to go south. So the people that were prepared had that seeking, um, were willing to act on the truth that they heard, and then share the truth that they knew. So as um, Wilford Woodruff returned from this experience, um, the, the records that he kept are the reasons we have these details. And so 
um, the, the message from him, the lesson that we can learn from him, is it's not only important to, to go through these processes, this, the process of faith, the process of conversion, the process of consecration, but to write it down. So I want to um, uh, talk about what, what difference it makes on how we re record things. And um, recently, President Nelson talked about uh, this very process, the principle of revelation. But what he said is it's not just if we pray and listen. It's not just that those thoughts and feelings and impressions um, and inspiration will come to us, but that we need to record them. Because we need to remember what actions the Lord would have us take and why, how we felt and what it meant and the conviction that we started in this process with. And as we do continue to repeat this process, in the words of the prophet Joseph Smith, we will grow into the principle of revelation. So growing into the principle of revelation requires recording. So uh, we use the Book of Mormon as an example. Um, Wilford Woodruff uh, wrote in his journals and called them the first book of, of Wilford, the second book of Wilford. So just like we have the third book of Nephi, we have the third book of Wilford. <coughs> Um, Moses wrote five books, um, John wrote three. I don't know how many journals you have, but you can call them the 15th book of David or John or whatever. In this process, um, many of us may write down some details. Uh, we might skip a few months, we might write down another lesson that we've learned. Um, or some of us, um, I am not gonna stand here and say, as an example of anyone who writes in their journal every day. But some of us may end our lives, um, maybe we're 70, maybe we're 80, and we, we, we decide we're gonna write it down. And it might be um, a book of Omni kind of thing. Um, and, or it might be, um, you know, a good book. But, go back one. Um, what Wilfred Woodruff um, not only asked his family and his friends, but continually asked the apostles, is to keep a journal. And he said, it's not just a travel log, although he kept track of every mile he walked and every minute that he spoke and everyone else spoke. It's a journal of the dealings of God with us. And not just the official acts, but the history of the events of this dispensation. He recognized at his baptism that this was an important time in the history of the world and began keeping a record. And it was an official record. His journal is uh, full of statistics and full of names. In fact, as we've done the research in the papers, there's over 8,000 individuals mentioned. And we're going through each one to identify them, to write a biographical sketch of them so that the context of his writings and his work can be found in those people's stories and that you can find your own connection to the restoration. It may be your ancestors, it may be the one that baptized your ancestors, it may be um, your convert, and you can find that connection in the places that he visited. But he kept a journal almost every day of his life, and that was 65 years. And if you think about the timeline that he was keeping a journal, it was some of the most fundamental revelations and changes um, in the restoration of all things, 
but also it was personal. It was his faith process and his conversion process, and it was a process. So by referring to his journals, he could tell each day what he'd done, but also who he was with, the company that he kept, and what was going on around him, and all the counsel and teaching that he received. So when you look at the Joseph Smith papers, when you look at the number of discourses that were recorded, Wilfred Woodruff recorded more than anyone. And he also recorded some that no one else recorded. Imagine what would be lost if we didn't have the King Follett sermon. <coughs> Imagine what would be lost if we didn't have the revelations that Wilfred recorded that um, weren't printed in the first Good Commandments. Imagine what would be lost if we didn't understand how the manifesto was issued or how polygamy began or, or how it ended or how difficult it was um, as Steve Harper outlined on Tuesday for the succession crisis after Brigham Young. But we do know those things and we know them because Wilfred Woodruff recorded them. I wish that he'd been there in 1820 because we'd know which tree Joseph Smith knelt up <laughs> and how many feet he walked between his home and the garden and the grove. Um, and exactly what day it occurred on. But those kind of details aren't as important as the process. Joseph Smith went through that process. He sought, he understood that to receive you must ask, and to find you must seek. So, back to Omni. Um, we have the Book of Omni and the Book of Mormon, and 230 years are covered in less than one page. So, we get from Omni, Kind of the um, Charles Dickens version of history. Many seasons of peace, seasons of wars, good times and bad times, and I make an end. And then we get to his um, son Amaron, um, and he writes the things whatsoever I write, which are few. And he delivers the plates to his brother. So his brother um, takes the time to write one verse. And he just tattletales on his brother and says, I watched him write that, and he wrote it the day he gave it to me. And yet he said, we're following the commandments of our fathers. I'm not sure that that's how the records were supposed to be kept. <laughs> so if we're going to be a Kimish or an Amaron or an Omni, um, we're going we're gonna to have one page in history. And what can we learn from that? Versus the next 230 years of history covers almost 250 pages in the Book of Mormon. And it includes the, the gems from Helaman and Alma and Mosiah and all the way to Third Nephi. And those are daily records. Those are the processes of, of the, the stories that we know so well. And again, if we're going to be the, be the record of Omni or be the record of, of Mosiah, uh, think about that for a minute. And then think about your siblings, if you have any, or your aunt or uncle. Who writes your family history? If you were Laman and Lemuel, would you want your own history written, or do you like Nephi's version of your story? <laughs> if you're Sariah, do you want to get two mentions in Nephi's versions, and both of them were the times when your faith faltered? What do you want your record to be? How do you want to be remembered, and what lessons have you learned that you can share? Because we get to choose who writes our story. And Wilfred Woodruff chose the best version, which is to record the daily struggle and he didn't just record the highlights. He recorded the good and the bad. He recorded the whole story. He recorded the truth. 
And in those recordings, he told of his failings, of his mistakes, and it, and it was part of the process. Part of that process of faith includes repentance, includes re forgiveness of ourselves and others. So if you um, think about where, what you're going to be judged out of, it's the records that we keep and the re record of your book of life, as it's mentioned in the book of Revelation. So again, from Wilfred Woodruff, he says, he, the Lord gives us these things. He gives us the, the, the good and the evil. And Wilfred Woodruff, one of his stories is about um, the, a, a trip that he took to Randolph, Utah. And he was, it was winter. He felt impressed to leave, and he didn't. And for five days, his family kept saying, you need, to, you need to stay, we want you to stay. And he ignored the promptings that he received. And so um, when he left the fifth day, he ended up getting about 15 miles out, and then it snowed for three days. It was six feet of snow, and he knew that his life was in danger, as well as his, his animals, which at that time was a significant loss. So he closed the door to his, his wagon, he let go of the reins, and prayed not only that God would forgive him, but spare his life. And again, understanding his imperfections, understanding that that's part of his record, um, is an important part of the process of recording. So another quote from Russell M. Nelson is that, um, I mentioned this earlier, that to receive we must ask, and that if we do ask, we will receive revelation. We're promised that, we'll receive that knowledge, and that when we receive revelation, we spend time in the presence of God. Just think about that for just a second. How incredible is that moment to spend in the presence of God, and that's our ultimate goal, to return to his presence. So each time we receive revelation, we get a little taste of what that will be like. The peace um, that passes understanding, the understanding, the, the comfort, the strength, um, the sustaining spirit that we feel. And that's what we can receive, that we're promised to receive. So if you um, consider the example of Wilfred Woodruff, again, he's no different than the other prophets. But if you will consider that process as recorded by so many in the scriptures, you can add the third book of Wilfred and understand that his example that he set for us um, is just following the example of our Savior, who also sought constantly for his Father's strength and his Father's inspiration and his Father's guidance, because we need to be in the presence of God, and we want to return to him, and we want to be comfortable in that presence. So what do we seek for? What are we looking for besides that? Um, President Nelson teaches us that to access the power of heaven, we have to have questions. And it's not just seeking to learn and understand, because all of that is part of our, our mortal experience, but not only will God answer our questions, he'll inspire our questions and help us know what to ask. Um, he knows what we need more than we do. And he knows what's ahead. So if we're gonna need that extra help, he can inspire us to ask for that. So in addition to seeking understanding, what else? What are we truly seeking for? And what does it require to get us there? So we need to seek learning. We need to seek faith. 
We need to seek truth. When we receive those answers, we need to, we need to ask for more. When we receive inspiration, we need to, to add that to our process of conversion. When we ask for direction, we need to follow the direction that we receive. When we ask for the Spirit, it's that companionship, that constant companionship. When we ask for knowledge, as it says in Proverbs, along with all our knowledge, we're going to gain understanding, and that's wisdom. And then we ask for that peace, which passes all that knowledge and understanding. And we seek God above all else. We're going to seek consecration because that means we're all in. And the further we're in, the more we receive. So we're going to seek light and more light. We're going to seek revelation and more revelation. And opportunities to serve because it's by sharing that, by serving others, that we fulfill those commandments that will allow us to return to our Father. We seek goodness. Uh, we seek the connections of family. And we seek the spiritual gifts. It says, seek the best gifts. So, to me, Wilford Woodruff is an incredible example of this. Not because, again, he's different than any other prophet or any, any of the rest of us. Imperfections were part of his life. He didn't expect perfection in anybody else and certainly didn't say that he was perfect. But the reason that um, I'm here talking today about Wilford Woodruff and not about Nephi or, or Moses or, or Matthew or Mark is because Wilford Woodruff recorded these things and we have access to them. And it is through that example of not only experiencing but recording and sharing that made all the difference. So I um, honor him. I honor the Savior that he followed. And the importance of records were something that the Savior emphasized when he came to this continent and read through the Nephite records and asked them to record additional things that they had missed. So um, Wilfred Woodruff's message is to live these processes, but also to um, record them. So we talked about Wilfred Woodruff's missions, um, and we all have the same mission. Um, the doctrine of the gathering is not just something we talk about, it's something we participate in. And it's not just on this earth, but on both sides of the veil. So we are here to gather the elect. To gather the elect, we must be among them and, and strive to be one of them. And then share with others to join us. So Wilfred Woodruff's message is that we have come to this earth to fulfill that mission. We're all on a mission. And we have, were born in this generation to take part in this work. Um, it's important, not just um, eventually, but today. We're called to do this work for the Lord. And that if we truly consecrate ourselves, we will take every opportunity we have to do so. So I share with you my testimony of these things. Um, my testimony that God is with us, that if we ask, um, he will give us. And if we seek, we will find. Um, I, I don't know that there's any other way um, to describe it. I continue to use the word process, but it is a lifelong process and each step is important. And in the seeking, um, the continual seeking, the continual conversion, the continual consecration, the continual sharing, we act each step of that way. Um, and we do so uh, with the Savior's blessing 
and with his strength and with the power and authority that he's given us to act in his name. And I want to share that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I also want to um, share with you information about the Wilfred Woodruff Papers Project. You can find all of these records at wilfredwoodruffpapers.org. And each month we continue to transcribe and um, publish more information. So to give you an example of what we're working on, the Joseph Smith Papers has a total of 2,500 documents. Already with Wilfred Woodruff, we have 10,000. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. So um, in his records, he recorded uh, 3,559 discourses. We've only found 900 of them. He recorded writing 13,000 letters and receiving 17,000, and we've only found 8,000 so far. And he wrote 6,000 pages in his journals, which we've transcribed all of them. But in addition to the words, um, it's the context. As I mentioned earlier, there's more than 8,000 people in these records. And those 8,000 people are part of the restoration. And their stories are incredible. And the context that they give to Wilfred Woodruff's records and to the, the total history is incredible. So the Joseph Smith papers um, extend 14 years from 1830 to 1844, and Wilfred Woodruff's records extend the history of the Restoration another 54 years. So, in my mind, the more truth, the better. And the context becomes clearer the more puzzle pieces we have, and Wilfred Woodruff provides that. So if you look at the, the list of people, um, we have um, these 8,000 individuals, and each month we continue to do more. But if you go to Family Search, there's a campaign called Journey of Faith, and they've now combined all of these resources into one search, so that you can put the name of your ancestor in this Journey of Faith and pull up the records from the Joseph Smith papers, from the Wilfred Woodruff papers, um, from the George Buchanan papers, from Eliza R. Snow and Emmeline Wells, the biographical databases of the pioneer journey across the plains, and um, Saints by Sea, so hopefully, all of you um, will have a connection and will be able to find yourself in, this, in the story of the restoration and the history of the church because we are all part of this journey. And I, if any of you have any questions about um, either what's happening or how to get involved, I'm happy to answer those. We have opportunities for volunteering. Uh, we also have student internships. We work mostly with high school and college students. Um, our audience is the rising generation, and the, the youth that we've been working with, we have about 40 right now, are, are phenomenal. So the editorial standard and method are the same as the Joseph Smith papers, um, but we're doing it with only one PhD, and his name is Stephen Harper. <laughs> so 